continue these conversations afterwards. And it would, it would help me if you turn back to Acts chapter 4, and it might just possibly uh, be an aid to you as well. Acts chapter 4. Let me pray. Father, would you speak to us today as you've speak, spoken through this incident over the centuries? Bring it alive to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been thinking about these dedications that we've uh, just conducted with those children. Uh, and I'm asking myself, what have we introduced them into? Uh, do we desire for them a faith or a religion? I'm being deliberately provocative in polarizing like that. Do we long for them to have a spirituality or a religiosity? Real Christianity or established churchianity? Well, the two halves of Acts chapter 4 illustrate that alternative. They're two separate worlds, almost two different planets, with quite different atmospheres and ecosystems. They're as different, we might say, as chalk from cheese. In the first half of the chapter, Luke describes the, the religious establishment, the way it behaves, its characteristic reactions. And in the second half, he describes the faith-filled community and its characteristics. It's the contrast between institutional religion and inspired faith, between churchianity and Christianity, between human religion and holy spirituality, between the establishment and the Christian community. Now, let me describe each in its simplicity and then draw some conclusions. And as I do, I want you to ask yourself, in which of these two am I? Um, does my marriage or family life, my house or flat share, my work environment, my community charity or voluntary work, or if I'm part of this church, my home group or my ministry team, do they belong in the first half of this chapter or in the second? Where am I living? Because, you see, anything we do can potentially live in either half. So let's look at each in turn. The council of the Sanhedrin, that was the ruling religious council, and the community of the Spirit, the first band of Christian believers. Or as a convenient shorthand, I'll call them the committee and the community. What is it like living in the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sadducees were the ruling class of wealthy aristocrats, and they were the majority group in the Sanhedrin. Politically, they ingratiated themselves with the Romans, and they followed a policy of collaboration. So they feared the subversive implications of the, of the apostles' teaching. They weren't looking for a Messiah. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, which the apostles were preaching in verse 2. They saw the apostles, therefore, as agitators and heretics, disturbers of the peace and enemies of the truth. That's why, verse 2, just look at it, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, notice how hierarchical they are and how concerned for order. 
In addition to the wealthy Aristos were the priests, in verse 1, and the captain of the temple guard. He was a kind of chief of temple police, responsible for law and order. This is a man who plays everything according to canon law, everything according to the book. And that's why in verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. That would have broken a law to conduct a trial late at night. Luke assures his readers straight away that the opposition of men could not hinder the word of God. The Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. On the contrary, look at verse 4. Many who heard the message believed, and the number grew to about 5,000. That's just a, a little marker from Luke. This religious authority, they look very impressive and intimidating. Actually, they're impotent. The next day, verse 5, the council is swelled with heavyweights. The rulers, that's the Sanhedrin men of influence, including the elders, they were probably kind of clan leaders, and the teachers of the law, they were the academic theologians. They met in Jerusalem, and notably Annas and Caiaphas, verse 6. Luke reminds us of them because they'd figured prominently in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Plus a few odd bods, John and Alexander, of whom we know nothing. They sat down in the customary semicircle, and Peter and John were brought before them. Memories of the trial of Jesus must have flooded the apostles' minds. Was history about to repeat itself? Imagine after a night in a cold cell, just as Jesus had been held. What must they have thought? The court began their interrogation with a straight question, verse 7, by what name and by what authority do you do this, healing a man? And Jesus, they would have instantly recognized, was asked exactly the same question at his trial. But instead of thinking of his own defense, Peter rushed to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. You can't possibly be objecting to an act of kindness to a crippled man, but if you want to know by what power he was healed, it was by the power of Jesus. And then he adds for good measure, the Jesus you crucified and God resurrected. You decided he was too bad to live. God decided he was too good to die. That's incidentally the third time Peter has put the boot in. And moreover, he says, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Notice in passing the ease with which Peter moves from healing to salvation, from the particular to the general. He sees one man's physical cure as a sign of the total healing, the forgiveness, the eternal life offered to everybody through Christ. And notice the double negative, no one else, no other name. Jesus, the only Savior. Well, the court was astonished by Peter and John's courage because they were unschooled, verse 13, meaning not that they were illiterate, they weren't, but they had no theological degrees. But then, end of verse 13, they took note that these men had been with Jesus because Jesus also lacked any formal theological education or professional status as a rabbi. At the same time, before their eyes, was the incontrovertible evidence of the healed cripple. 
despite the fact that it was well known in the city, he'd never walked in his life, there he was standing in front of them. So there was nothing they could say. They couldn't deny it. They wouldn't acknowledge it. What do you do in such situations if your life is in the Sanhedrin? Well, you passed next business. Embarrassed, they ordered them out of the court, verse 15, so that they could confer in private. Well, it was a right quandary. On the one hand, they couldn't deny the miracle. Everyone knew it. On the other hand, they must stop this thing spreading any further. And you can't help noticing that they avoided altogether the main thing, the heart of the apostles' message, their witness to the resurrection. They didn't even attempt to discredit that, although they knew it was the core of the message. So what could they do? All they could think of was to warn them, verses 17 and 18, hauled Peter and John back in and solemnly forbade them not to speak in the name of Jesus. To which Peter and John gave the spirited reply in verse 19, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. So a few more threats, verse 21, and they were released. It didn't seem possible to punish them, the people were behind them. The healed man was over 40, so everyone knew him, and the evidence of his cure was known to all. Well, now, from that rather sorry committee, let's turn to the community. If I can put it like this, what does it feel like living not in the Sanhedrin, but in the Spirit? who had been so recently and liberally poured out. Well, it feels like coming up for air. Peter and John's instant reaction, verse 23, was to go straight to their relatives and friends in Christ, report everything the council had said to them, and incidentally, that's a good thing to do when you've been caught up in controversy. Find people to debrief with. And the instinctive and immediate reaction of all was to turn together in prayer to God. Verse 24, quite unlike the instinctive reaction of the council, which was to debate and argue. Here's the Christian fellowship in action, in its default mode. And Peter and John, having been bold in witness in the council, are now equally bold in the fellowship in prayer. And incidentally, did you realize we have to be as courageous when we come into church on Sunday as when we walk into the office on Monday? Though it doesn't say the apostles led the prayer, there appeared little human control of the prayer meeting because they all prayed, they raised their voices together, and the Spirit presided. So that's why their first words were, Sovereign Lord, rather than, Mr. Chairman, on a point of order. Sovereign Lord. Despotes, the word used of a slave owner. In other words, the Sanhedrin might utter warnings, threats, prohibitions, throw their weight around and try to silence the church, but they themselves were slaves to a higher order. Before they come to requests... 
which is a tiny footnote to their prayers, almost a P.S. They fill their minds with thoughts of God's power and his control over the world. He's the God of creation, verse 24. You made the heaven and the earth, everything in them. He's the God of revelation, verse 25. You spoke, pointedly quoting Psalm 2, which had prophesied that when the Christ came, the world would oppose him. The key word, against. The rulers of the world gather not before their Lord, but against their Lord. And most devastating, not just the Gentile world leaders opposing Christ, <clears throat> but also the Jewish religious leaders. And he's the God of history, verse 27. You decided. Even this unholy alliance of Herod and Pilate, incidentally, there's no justification for Christian anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews as the Christ killers. It was Herod and Pilate, Jewish and Gentile hatred. As he goes on to repeat, the Gentiles and the people of Israel conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Yet even this unholy alliance, all they could achieve was precisely, verse 28, what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So who controls history? The sovereign Lord does. That's who. He's the God of creation, the God of revelation, and the God of history. And only now, with their vision of God clarified and themselves humbled before him in praise, were they ready at last to pray. And they asked for three things. First, that God would consider their threats. Verse 29, not that God would visit judgment on their threats, or even that the threats wouldn't be carried out so that the church could be preserved in peace and safety, but, Lord, would you bear them in mind? Secondly, that God would enable them to speak with courage, undeterred and unafraid of the threats, whether or not they were carried out. Of course, Courage to speak boldly would make the threats more likely to be carried out. And thirdly, that God would stretch out his hand with more healings. Verse 30, their demand is not for miracles of vengeance, but for miracles of mercy. And in answer to their threefold prayer, there's a threefold answer. The place was shaken, verse 31, maybe there was a minor earthquake tremor. Tremor. Possibly a sign that made them all the more unshaken. Secondly, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, they spoke the word of God boldly, an immediate answer to their specific prayer. Well, there's another footnote the incredible love between them. And it's in the verse after I finish reading. Just look at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And the flow of it continues straight on to verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money. But you notice sandwiched in between, almost as it were in brackets, is verse 33. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. The apostles testified to the risen Christ. Do you see, they kept the main thing the main thing. And they testified with such great power in the context of such great generosity. Maybe it was because they were so liberal with their possessions that God was so liberal with His grace. Well, now, let me draw some conclusions from the story. How do the committee and the community compare? What is the difference between living in the Sanhedrin, and whatever that might mean metaphorically to each of us today, every part of our life, what's the difference between living in the Sanhedrin and living in the Spirit? What's the difference between religion and faith? between the religious spirit and the Holy Spirit? Well, first, there's a difference of focus. The primary focus of the committee is on man, to obey man, to please man, to form coalitions and pressure groups and win votes. The primary focus of the community of the Spirit is on God, to please Him and to obey Him. That's why the primary activity of the committee is debate, while the primary activity of the community is prayer. Committees take votes to discover the majority human opinion. The community of the Spirit prays to try to discover God's will. And although part of discovering the will of God may be discussion in a group, there's nevertheless this quite stark difference of focus, isn't there? The committee is at its heart man-centered, while the community is at its heart God-centered. There's a difference of focus. Secondly, there's a difference of values. The primary value of the Sanhedrin is don't rock the boat. At all costs, the status quo mustn't be disturbed. The stability of what we've always believed and done and the way in which we've done it is more important than anything else. That's why the Sanhedrin was so greatly disturbed. Whereas the primary value of the Spirit is to shake the community regularly. Not to shake them from their faith, but to shake everything else because it's only in that way that their faith will remain unshaken. So shake their leaders, shake their pockets, shake their security by opposition and even persecution, shake even the place where they meet. But by any and every means, they must be shaken up regularly because the Spirit's heart is in mission, whereas the heart of the Sanhedrin is in maintenance. Thirdly, there's a difference of agenda. The primary agenda of the human religious institution is containment. The institution is seen as the container of religion, and the agenda of its officers is control. Now, their means may be heavy-handed threats or very gentle persuasion, but whether by hook or by crook, human manipulation is the name of the game. So its agenda is the machinery rather than the message the mechanism of containment rather than the deposit of faith. 
Whereas the primary agenda of the Spirit is not containment, but release of the gospel message. The preoccupation of the Spirit is not with the container of religion, but with the content of the faith. And that's why Sanhedrins will always operate primarily at an emotional level, whereas Spirit-filled communities operate at a rational level. And there's no divergence between mind and spirit. Hence this earnestness, do you see, not only in prayer, but to get the message out. The community of the Spirit is not just filled with hot air. It is passionately concerned for truth. It has a word-based ministry. And that's why it keeps returning to the central gospel issues and truths, a habit of mind conspicuously absent from the Sanhedrin. And fourth and finally, there's a difference of qualification. The primary qualification for membership of the committee is human accreditation. By age, by status, by wealth, by human power and influence, and by the academic establishment. As someone naughtily put it, the death of the church historically has never been sudden, but usually by degrees. Whereas the primary qualification for membership of the community is by function rather than by status. Unschooled, ordinary men and women, but they've been with Jesus. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're passionate for God's honor and glory, and they're fervent in prayer, and they're focused on evangelism, and they're up for the demolition of all their comfort zones, and they've abandoned their possessions, and they're risking their safety, and they're loving one another, and they're praying for the sick, and not a single one of them is needy, and they're more concerned about their courage than their reputations. It's a different ball game. It's a different planet. Now, each of us has to make the fundamental choice whether we will operate at the level of what I've caricatured. It is a caricature. Uh, what I've caricatured as committee or as community. There's nothing wrong, incidentally, with what we call committees as such. In fact, I'm rather used to them. I belong to at least 13 or 14 of them. But a committee never becomes a community without a oneness of heart and purpose. And then it's transformed into community. Your team at work in the secular world can be either committee or community. And it becomes a spiritual community when it operates on Holy Spirit principles. Any committee that meets, we will soon next month be committing a new church council. It could be committee or it could be community. Equally, a so-called community can easily degenerate into the behavior of what I've called committee. The different parts of our life, just think about them. Your home group could be committee if it's dominated by a leader who poses as the decision maker in it. So could your flat share if it's ruled by law rather than by grace. An independent church or a charismatic prayer group could be committee unless freed from manipulation by a core elite. And so could your marriage unless you liberate each other to fulfill each other's highest potential. 
or your family life unless you pray. The family that prays together stays together. Or your Christian ministry unless it's dependent on God rather than on worldly values. Do you see the question, will we live in the Sanhedrin or in the Spirit? And what do we desire for those little children as for ourselves? A religious spirit or the Holy Spirit? Well, the proof here is in the outcome. The Sanhedrin is in decline, morally bankrupt, spiritually stagnant, and about to cease to exist altogether. Whereas the Spirit's community is exploding. 5,000 already and growing daily. And billions today. We're going to sing. And